You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Thank you, Marlon. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you so much for uh, each person who is able to be here today. Um, I know that not one person here is lost in your sight, that you, you see them. Um, you know where they are. They're not uh, lost in a crowd. Um, you love them. You're aware of their story. Uh, you care deeply. And I pray that right now, I know we all come in different places in this room. Some of us come in really happy and excited to be here. Others may be uh, disappointed. They're filled with doubt, discouragement, maybe just bored, um, struggling in the season of their life. Wherever they are, I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just take this word, which is alive and active and living, and that you would minister through this to meet each one of us where we are. And that you would do this to transform us from the inside out for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I participated in our Overcomers meeting, which uh, happens right here in this room. And for those unfamiliar with Overcomers, it is essentially a 12-step program that is rooted in the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. And this is a big deal because uh, despite the fact that many of our 12-step programs like AA was actually started by Christians, an increasing number of these programs are now replacing God language with, quote, a higher power language. And the reason that they are doing this is simple. It's more user-friendly. It's more believable for an increasing number of people in our society to believe in a random higher power than it is to believe in a personal and powerful God. And so more and more people are showing up to these programs and saying, higher power, sure, if that's what you want to call it, I'm cool with that, uh, but please don't insult my intelligence by expecting me to believe in this divine being who is both powerful enough to create the world and personal enough for me to have a beck and call conversation with in the everyday stuff of life. And the reason I share that with you is because my guess is is that this is where some of you find yourself today. I know we're in a church service and maybe you would never say something like this out loud, but because of your own unanswered prayers, because of the hardship and the suffering uh, and the pain that you have experienced in your life, when it comes to this idea that there is a God who is both powerful and personal, uh, you have your doubts. Uh, I mean, maybe you even sit here and you ask yourself this question or you've been wondering, is God really as good and mighty as he says he is in the Bible? Or maybe you even find yourself asking a question that's even more terrifying is, is God even there at all? And, and if you have never asked that question or one like it, I promise you there's going to come a season in life where you will. It's just a matter of time. 
Teach us to pray. That is the title of this sermon series, and the request comes from Jesus' disciples. It's a strange request because the men that tell Jesus, hey, teach us how to pray, they're actually Jewish men who grew up praying. They grew up in the temple learning how to pray three to four times a day. But what's happening here is they've come to this awareness that their life and their ministry does not look as powerful as the life and ministry of Jesus. So they make this very simple and yet profound connection that we have to make today. And it's the reality that if we are going to live like Jesus, we have to learn how to pray like Jesus. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. And in response, Jesus starts praying. And the first thing that he says in the prayer, which we're going to look at today, is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So before Jesus ever says, this is how you should pray, he wants you to know who it is you are praying to. So we have to get this down as a church, as a people. Who is it that we are actually talking to? And according to Jesus... We are praying to our Father. And when we pray our Father, we're remembering three things that I want to look at today. We're remembering, one, who God is. Two, we're remembering, right, who we are. And then three, we're remembering who we are to one another. I want to say a word on each. And so first off, remember who God is. That line, our Father in heaven, is pretty dismissible today. It rolls off the tongue of experienced Christians like the happy birthday song just kind of effortlessly and mindlessly rolls off the song uh, off my lips at my kid's birthday, right? It's something that, that we think is optional or it's not really that significant. It doesn't really matter. Not to mention, there are also some of you in this room that because of wounds that you have experienced from your own earthly father, you find it hard to relate to God in this way. For some of you in the room today, you had a dad growing up who was absent. He was not present or in the equation, whether it be because of a death or a divorce or because, honestly, he just wasn't that interested in you. He wasn't around. Some of you grew up with a dad who was an abusive dad. And this is a dad who not only did not help you, he actually harmed you. He used his words and possibly even his hands to abuse you. For some of you, you grew up in a home with a performance-based dad. And so, yes, he loved you if you were able to live up to his standards. As long as you made the good grades or scored the touchdown or acted exactly the way he thought you should be acting, then you were met with his love. Maybe some of you grew up with a passive dad. He was there, but he wasn't really there. Does that make sense? He was almost kind of like a ghost who just kind of floated around in the hallways of your home. And so for whatever reason, whether it be because he was just ignorant or he was lazy or because of wounds that he received from his own earthly father that he did not deal with, he did not take responsibility for your soul. He did not lead you. He did not lead your family. He did not pour into you. He did not protect you. He did not disciple you. And because of this, whether you had a father who was absent, abusive, performance-based, or passive, you now unintentionally, without even realizing this is happening, are projecting the imperfections of your earthly father onto your heavenly father. And the reason this matters so much, guys, is please listen to me. If you have a flawed view of God, you're going to have a flawed life. Like if you do not see God properly, rather than flourishing, rather than being resilient and joy-filled and non-anxious, you will struggle to grow into the man or the woman that God made you to be. 
And because Satan knows this is true, the number one way that he is going to try to take you out, the number one way he is going to try to kill, steal, and rob from your life is by convincing you that God is actually not who he says that he is, that he's actually not a perfectly good and loving father who has your best interest in mind. And this is what we see in the original story, right? In Genesis chapter 3, God creates the world. It's beautiful. It's rhythmic. It's as it should be. But then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the snake creeps onto the scene. And he says to Eve, listen to this. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, for those of you who've read the Bible, is that what God said? No. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, his exact words were, you may eat of any tree in the garden, just don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it's poison. If you eat of it, it will kill you. And so when the snake asked, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree? What is he doing? He's not just telling an outright lie. He's just bending the truth. He's planting seeds of deception that are hard to detect. And in doing so, he's convincing Eve that God is actually not a generous and loving father. He's a stingy and restrictive tyrant. Simply put, he is trying to destroy Eve's life, not by tempting her to eat the forbidden fruit, but by slowly and surely chipping away at her trust in God. Now, if you've read the story, you know, unfortunately, Eve takes the bait. She and her husband believe that God is holding out on them, that he actually does not have their best interests in mind. And when this happens, you will try to take matters into your own hands. You'll begin to believe, I know better than God how to run my life. That's where they are. And as a result, they eat of the fruit God says, do not eat from. And immediately, single-cell organisms to mountain and oceans, everything is fractured by the fall. They go from living in Eden, which means delight, to experiencing death and destruction and disease and dysfunction and all these things that we now experience today as a result of living in this fallen and broken world. And so whenever Jesus then walks on the scene and he teaches us to pray, our Father, you need to understand he's not just giving God some clever new name. He is shedding light on this ancient deception that has robbed many of us from living the life that we long to experience. And in doing so, he is ultimately trying to restore our trust in the creator, God, who also happens to be your good and loving father. And guys, we have to get this today. Listen, I know that right now there's nothing that I've said that you good church people are not just like, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. And if that's where you are, you have no idea what you have. You don't get it yet. Like, this should blow our minds. This blew the minds of those in the first century. Like, they knew God was, was mighty and powerful. But the idea that the God of the universe is our Father, there wasn't even a category for something like this. And I believe that actually the number one obstacle that many of you are facing today, and many of us are facing today, especially when it comes to prayer, is the inability to actually believe in our hearts that God loves us as much as he says that he does. You see, just like Adam and Eve, we are all tempted to distrust that a God this mighty and this powerful would actually want to have a close and personal and intimate relationship with someone as broken as me. And this is why Jesus says, before you pray, you got to remember who God is. you got to remember that he is your father. He's not just powerful. He's also approachable. And he's personable. And he loves you and he likes you and he wants to have a relationship with you. So remember who you're talking to. That means remember who God is. But then secondly, remember who you are. To remember that God is our father, is to remember that you are his child. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, to all who receive Jesus, God gives the right to become his children. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will. As I read that verse this past week, I started thinking about, um, about Emmy and Eli, these two kids at the Pierces just recently adopted. And if you've not met them yet, they're amazing, amazing kids. Uh, yeah, there's a picture with them in there. Emmy, by the way, has more energy of any little girl I've ever met in my life. I got to teach her VBS class uh, this, this past, uh, I guess it was last week now. And anytime there was like a down moment, she would drop and do push-ups, <laughs> like literally just like <laughs> blowing them out. It's pretty intimidating actually. And uh, awesome kids. But I begin to think about this adoption and adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Because Eli and Emmy, they didn't choose Robert and Allison. Robert and Allison chose them. And Robert and Allison chose them not because of something they have done. That they chose them out of compassion and love and mercy. And they said, we want you, no matter what you have done or have not done, we want you to be a part of our family, just as much a part of our family and just as much our kids as our own blood natural children. As they brought them into their family to reparent them and to love them and to provide an environment for them where they can grow up and become the people God made them to be. And listen, when we pray our Father, we are remembering this is what God has done for us. Like, like it's to remember like, like you're a chosen one. Like God chose you. He, he wanted to adopt you and not because of anything you have done, but because the Bible says God is love. And out of an overflow of that love, it's like he can't help himself. The Bible says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I love that it doesn't just say that God loved the world. It says he so loved the world. Some of you know what it's like to so love your kids. I remember whenever I had, we have three kids now, and I remember I was just one of these guys. I, I, I'm not a big touchy-feely kind of person. I never changed the diaper. Uh, I just wasn't into that kind of stuff. I'm kind of a germaphobe. You guys know that about me. And, and so, like, uh, you know, I just thought, like, I don't know what this is going to be like. But, man, whenever I had my first kid, I, I could not help myself. Like, I'm doing embarrassing stuff, like, 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 like using little baby voices to talk to my kids, and, and I'm actually wiping their bottle. I'm doing all this stuff where I would give my life up for my kids before they ever did anything but poop their pants. Like, I still would do everything because I so love my children. God so loved the world that he gave up his son Jesus for you to live a perfect, sinless life you could never live. Look around. You know what we all have in common? We're all a bunch of sinners. We're all imperfect. We're all broken. We're all in need of the perfect, righteous record of Christ. And that's what he came to do, to live a perfect, sinless life you could never live. To go to the cross and then shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. He paid the penalty that we should have paid for our sins. And then he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. Three days later, he conquered sin, death, and hell. So that now, no matter who you are or where you come from, if you will simply trust in Jesus... If you will go to him with the empty hands of faith, you can know this is what is now true of you. You are redeemed. That's who you are. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You are loved. And according to John 17, by the way, John 17, 23, you are loved by God the Father as much as he loves his own perfect son, Jesus. And whether you know it or not, here's what I submit to you this morning. This is everything you long for. You may hear that and yawn at that. You may be bored by that. It may not move you in any way emotionally, but I promise you that is everything you have been looking for since birth. I've got three kids, 10, 9, and 5, 
And I don't know if your kids or anything like my kids, but my kids come up to me all the time. You know what they say to me? It seems like a thousand times a day. Dad, watch this. Dad, watch me run. Dad, watch me catch. Dad, watch me swim. Dad, watch me do this flip. Dad, watch me drink this cup of water without using my hands. What is that about? It's about the reality that no matter who you are or where you come from, we all long to be seen by our dad. We long for the attention and the affection of a father. And listen, if you got that as a kid, praise God, because it's huge. But if you did not get that, then listen, you know there is a gap in your life. And you can try to fill that gap with sex or popularity or drugs or, or, or food You can try to fill that with a thousand different things, but they're still going to feel like there's something missing in your life. And this is why at Jesus' baptism, think about this. How crazy is this? At Jesus' baptism, before he ever does anything in the ministry, he is baptized by John the Baptist. And when he comes out of the, the water, the Father, God the Father says out loud, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Why did he say that? Because God the Father knew that even Jesus, the perfect son of God, needed to have that affirmation over his life if he was going to be able to fulfill the mission that God had given him. And if you're like, well, good for Jesus, but what does that have to do with me? Well, what Jesus is teaching us here is when we pray our Father, he is reminding us that the same blessing God the Father spoke over Jesus, he now speaks over you. If you have trusted in Christ, no matter who you are or what you have done or have not done, you can know right now you are a beloved child of God. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter with whom he is well pleased. For some of you this morning, my guess is you have been embracing a false identity that is rooted in shame, that is rooted in your wounds. And that is why whenever you're laying your head down at night and it's dark and no one else is around, though you don't say it out loud to yourself, you say things like, I'm so ugly. I am disgusting. I am dumb. I'm pitiful. I am worthless. I am unwanted. I am unlovable. Some of you in this room, you were not loved by your earthly father. And you need to know, listen to me. Please look right at me. That's not your fault. That's on him. It's not on you. You still think it's about you. And so for some of you, your dad left your mom and you're still blaming yourself. I mean, dad used to yell at you, shame you, belittle you, and you think it's because you deserved it. Dad didn't show up at your games, wasn't present. And whether you realize it or not, deep down inside, you think that's actually about you. And if that's where you are, listen, God wants to shine the light of his love on you this morning. He wants you to go from just knowing about his love, like, okay, preacher, yeah, 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 yeah. He wants you to know from like, he wants you to go from knowing about his love to experiencing a deep-seated, rock-solid confidence that, no, you are loved. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. And so when we pray our Father, we remember who God is, we remember who we are, and we remember who we are to one another. Notice in this prayer, Jesus does not tell us to pray my Father. He says to pray our Father. And listen, look around the room. 
Look around the room real fast. Everybody just kind of look around for a moment. If God is our father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. No matter who you are. No matter your personality, your political preference, the color of your skin, your background, no matter what stage of life you're in, we are brothers and sisters. We are family united together because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And that is why, by the way, the go-to metaphor in the New Testament to describe you is not a follower of Jesus, it's not a disciple, it's not a student. The go-to metaphor in the Bible is family. In fact, on 342 different occasions just in the New Testament alone, you're referred to as a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, or family. And so when we pray our Father, we're remembering that according to Jesus, and please get this, and I know we say this almost every week, but I'm going to say it again because we tend to forget it because we live in the South. The church is not a building. The church is not an event. The church is not this. The church is a family. And therefore, because that is true, we have to remember who we are to one another. So is this, is this important? Yeah, because healthy families worship together. If we're family, we, we should worship together. But not only should we shouldn't stop here, we should also eat together because healthy families do that. We should laugh with one another and cry with one another. We should pray for one another. We should spend time together. We should hold each other accountable. We should share resources and responsibilities as needs arise. We should make decisions together. We should encourage and love one another. And you know, if you're part of our church, the primary place this happens is in the context of our missional communities. That's why we started, when we started the church, we started with one missional community. We didn't start like this. We started with missional communities because you can't be family with everybody in here. It's impossible. Jesus himself only had 12 people. He was really close to him within that three. So that's why we tell you, you've got to move beyond the Sunday together and you have to get connected in the context of a MC, of a missional community. It's where we learn how to embrace our identity as family and therefore flourish So this is where prayer begins, our Father, which reminds us who God is. But if you notice, this is not where prayer ends. And so this isn't where we can end the sermon today. Jesus says in here, once you get down that God is our Father, he then says, you must pray, hallowed be his name. Simply put, what does it mean to hallow? I'm guessing that's not a a word that y'all use a lot. I'm guessing most of you guys, like your wives don't walk in the room and like, let me just hallow your name for a moment right? It's not very common language. To hallow God's name simply means to just tell God how great he is. Does that seem odd to anybody else in here, by the way? That Jesus says, before you ever ask God for anything, you should tell him how great that he is. I think that begs a question. Why does an all-powerful, holy, self-sufficient God need me as a meager creation of his own imagination to remind him of how great he is? I mean, is God just really this insecure? Is God that big of a megalomaniac that he needs you to read and reread his press clippings to him before you talk to him? Or is he so easily manipulated that with just a little bit of buttering up, he's more likely to answer your prayers? I like you. Thank you for telling me how amazing I am. Yes, now we'll answer your prayers. Is that what's going on? No, it's none of that. Not even close. See, to hallow God's name is not for his benefit. It's for my benefit. 
and it's for your benefit. And you say, well, where do you get that from? Because the truth is, and please hear me, everybody hallows someone or something. Everybody in this room is worshiping someone or something. Another, another way of saying that is everybody in here is looking to someone or something for their ultimate source of satisfaction and security, their happiness and their fulfillment. And listen to me very carefully. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this. If you choose to worship someone or something outside of God, it will eat you alive. And I could give you example after example. If you worship money, if that's the thing you end up thinking you need in order to be happy and fulfilled, you'll never feel like you have enough, ever. And the more you get, the more you're going to want. It's going to create this insatiable thirst that you just cannot quench. Worship success. You can win every game, and you're still going to feel like a failure. Worship your kids, worship your spouse, and you're going to crush them with your expectations or they're going to crush you with disappointment. Do I need to go on? Nobody, did you, one person answer me. Worship food, you become a glutton. Does this make sense? Worship pleasure, you become an addict. You become enslaved by your desires. And that is why Jesus says we must spend time every single day hallowing the name of God. It is why we must, with our words, say out loud that God is the most glorious being on the planet and life truly does work best, not when I'm at the center, but whenever he's at the center. And if there was ever a time in our society that we needed to adopt this kind of prayer, it's now. In 2013, the Oxford Dictionary listed the selfie as the word of the year. Do you know what a selfie is, Randy? I didn't figure you did. So let me explain this for you. A selfie is whenever you take a picture of yourself by yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's incredible. Like that right there. That's how you do it. I'm not, I, I am not bashing selfies. I've obviously taken a few of my own. So um, listen to this, though. According to the Economic Times, 93 million selfies are taken every single day. And as research has pointed out, the selfie syndrome, as it has been labeled, has not only led to an increase of narcissism or preoccupation with self, but it is also leading to increased feelings of anxiety, loneliness, shame, and sorrow. Life doesn't work well when you try to put yourself at the center of it. And so according to Jesus, he says, hey, you want to get better, you want to get healthier, you want to get stronger, you want to get more resilient, you want to have more joy and happiness in your life, hallow the name of God. And a more common way of saying this is you must spend time every day praising the name of God. And praise, simply put, this is just my definition, is to say or sing who God is. Think of the Psalms. The Psalms, which is in the middle of your Bible, it's all a bunch of just hallowing the name of God set to melody. It was meant to be sung as songs that declare how great God is. And here's the thing. Praise is powerful. And it's powerful because what you set your attention on is what will eventually shape you into who you are or who you aren't. Praise is a way that we, through song, we did it earlier, we, we, we declare with our mouths who God really is and what he's done for us. And I just want to, to say this. Praise, guys, it's not the warm-up act. Like, like getting us ready for preaching. It's not like stretching before the big game. That's not what works. Like, that's a huge part of what we do. Coming and declaring to God, like, like he is who he says that he is. And, and I know there are some of you here that are like, man, praise and worship just ain't my thing. I didn't grow up Pentecostal. 
or I didn't grow up Baptist. I'm a logical person. I'm not really a feely type person. And so maybe for you, when it comes to worship, you're like, man, I don't ever really feel the presence of God. I don't really get it. Like I see people here who are raising their hands and they're like singing and their mouths are wide and they look like, you know, these expressions on their face and we're even kneeling down. They, they, they're moving and like, I just don't get that. And maybe for some of you, let me just say this real fast. Maybe you look at people who are raising their hands. I raise my hands, right? And, and you say like, man, Jared must really be feeling it today. Maybe, but a lot of times, let me tell you the truth. You know why I'm raising my hands? Because I'm not feeling it. But because my mind's distracted. Because I'm thinking about a hard conversation I just had, or, or I'm actually hungry, and what am I going to eat for lunch, or I'm about to preach a sermon, and I don't really have my introduction done, and i got to get a smooth introduction so you guys are impressed with the sermon, or whatever it may be. And in that moment, I know the words I'm singing are not computing with my heart, and so I'm raising my hands as a way of getting my heart to follow my body. You need to understand that, hey, please hear this. Worship is not about emotion. It's about formation. It's about a discipline by which we declare the greatness of God with our entire being. And according to Jesus, listen, this is where all powerful prayer begins with this deliberate and gritty and even at times what feels like a defiant form of adoration. And one of the greatest examples we have of this is in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are stripped naked. They're beaten with rods. They're thrown into solitary confinement. Their ankles are chained to the ground because they've been preaching the gospel. And in chapter 16, verse 25, it says, Paul and Silas are there in prison, praying and singing hymns. Praying and singing. Are they delusional? Like, are they crazy? No. They understand the power of defiant adoration. They understand that hallowing the name of God, praising the name of God is most important when God's absence is more obvious to you than his presence. When the noise and the brokenness of the world is drowning out the noise of the Father's love and when God seems to be taking an unfortunate day off from the cosmic battle of redemption. It is in times like these more than any other we need to raise a hallelujah to enter into a time of God-glorifying praise. Paul and Silas in this passage, they're not hallowing God's name because they're so overwhelmed with the goodness of God. They are hallowing his name as a powerful act of defiant adoration. And I just want to say this to us, this is to our church. If Paul and Silas can do something like that in prison, then you can do something like that no matter where you are in your life right now. If Paul and Silas can hallow and praise the name of God when they are beaten and bloody and chained to a prison floor, then you can hallow God's name no matter what circumstance or what season you find yourself in. These men are not worshiping God because they're caught up in some sort of spiritual euphoria. They're singing and praising because their life has fallen apart. They're praying and singing because they have no idea where God is. And so listen, you have to get this. And I promise we're getting close to coming in for a landing this morning, but you have to get this. To praise God, to hallow his name, is not reserved for the spiritually elite or the charismatic people in the church. It's not for the sentimental or the emotional or the overly optimistic. To praise God in the middle of your pain, that takes courage. To hallow God's name, to praise his name, even when you don't feel him, that's not inauthentic. That's brave. It takes courage to look at the darkness of this world and rather than choosing to numb out on the cheap medication the world offers us, we instead choose to turn our gaze back to God, which then transforms us from the inside out. 
Paul and Silas are in prison. They're howling in the name of God. They're singing and praying. In the very next verse, verse 26, it says, Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison wall were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. I don't have time to read the rest of the story, but one thing led to another. The prison warden then gave his life to Jesus. He then says to Paul and Silas, Come home, tell my family about Jesus. They then received the gospel, and all of them are baptized in a bathtub. Paul and Silas praised God in the middle of their pain. And as a result of hallowing the name of God, think about this, and we'll talk about this a lot more next week. As a result of hallowing the name of God, the kingdom of God began to break into this dark corner of the world. All that being said, and we're done today, my guess is this morning that some of you need to know that God is powerful. That he's powerful enough to shake prison walls. He's powerful enough to free captives. Some of you in this room, you need to see the kingdom of God break into a part of your life. And my encouragement to you is this. If you want to get there, even if you don't feel like it, hallow the name of God. Praise God's name. Cultivate a life of praise and watch what happens. For others in here, more than you need to know that God is a powerful God, you need to know that he is a personal God. For some of you, it's easy, especially if you grew up in the church. It's easy for you to have this idea of God as high and mighty and holy and king and sovereign. That's easy for you to wrap your mind around. But it is very hard for you to believe and trust in God as a good and loving and personal and intimate father. And because I believe that's a lot of us in here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Um, I want to encourage you to use your imagination for one moment. And, And if it helps you, close your eyes so you're not distracted. But I want you to use your imagination just for a moment. We're almost done, I promise you. I want you just for a moment to imagine what would it have been like for you to actually grow up with a perfect dad? How would your life have been different if your dad would have always been there? How would your life be different if your dad actually came to the game? How would it be different if your dad actually showed up on your birthday or on your wedding day or when your kid was born at the big moments in your life? How would your life be different if you could have just heard him say, I love you? What would be different in your life if, if you would have known you had a dad that whenever you messed up that you could actually go to him and know that rather than being met with condemnation, you were met with compassion? How would your life been different if you actually had a dad who would have come into your room and sit on your bed and just ask this very simple yet profound question, how are you? And then not only would he ask the question, have the courage to ask the question, but he would listen to you. Not only would he listen to you, he would understand you. What would it have been like? How would your life been different if you would have had a dad there to protect you? A dad who was even consistent and, and, and even disciplined you in the appropriate way, not because he was just fired up and raging, but out of love because he wanted to protect you and care for you. Imagine if you would have grown up. How would your life been different if you would have had a father who actually said to you, I am so proud of you? a father who was perfectly present. Here's what I want you to think about this morning. With that on your mind and in your heart, God wants you to know that he is the fulfillment of everything you just imagined and hoped for. And if you want to know God in this way, here's what you do. 
You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to perform. You don't have to have perfect attendance or start giving more money to the church or make straight A's or anything like that. But if you want to experience God as this kind of father, here's what you do. You go to the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, there God the Father gave up his son, Jesus, who by his wounds now can bring healing to your wounds, no matter how deep they run. And you can now receive in Christ the full love and acceptance and affirmation that you've been longing for from a father. What I want to encourage you to do before we head out of here, you don't have to do this out loud. I'm not going to ask you to stand or raise your hand or anything like that. But, but if you don't know God in this way, like you're sitting there right now, and man, I used to be there. My dad, my dad's actually right here on the front row. I grew up under his preaching, and there's a lot of times I hear him talk about this kind of stuff, and I'd be like, yeah, 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 good for you, whatever else. But it's like it wasn't until I was 20 that I actually fully experienced Christ. I surrendered my life to him. If you've never done that, man, I, I encourage you to do that today right where you are, where you're sitting, just where you are. If you don't know God as a loving father, here's what I want to encourage you to do. You don't have to pray this out loud, but in your heart, just pray this. Father, I know that my sin separates me from you. I know that I've rebelled against you. I know that I've not trusted you, that I have tried to trust in my way, that I've tried to put myself at the center of something else, a girlfriend or a husband, a wife, a spouse, my kids, money, something else at the center of all of it. Today, I just repent of that. And I'm going to encourage you, like the prodigal son, to run to the Father right now in your heart and say to him that I trust that that, that Jesus, that you came and you accomplished everything that I could not accomplish for myself. I trust that you lived this perfect sinless life that I could never live and you died on the cross from my sins and you rose from the dead so now I can have a relationship with you, God. I want this relationship. Forgive me. Accept me into your family. And listen, if you pray that prayer, I promise you right now, you are forgiven. You are accepted. You are redeemed. You are a beloved child of God. And if you pray that prayer, you make that decision today, I would encourage you, talk with someone that you came with who you know maybe is a follower of Jesus. Come and talk to me. I would love to connect with any of you and learn next steps. And let me just be real clear. I want to say this because I don't want some of you years down the road. If you made this decision today, and it's a big decision. It's the best decision you'd make, but it's a, it's a big decision. I don't want, if you made this decision, for you to walk out of here and, and years on down the road say, that pastor never told me this. So I'm going to tell you right now. If you choose to follow Jesus, if God becomes your father, that does not mean your life's going to become easy. It doesn't. If you choose to follow Jesus, when you come into the family of God, it does not mean that you won't have hardship. But what it does mean is you won't go through the hardship alone. That you'll go through it with a loving father who'll walk with you even to the valley of the shadow of death. And on the other side of that death is a resurrection that is bigger and beautiful than you could ever imagine. What we're going to do now, something we do every single week, is we're going to partake of communion. And so I'm going to provide, invite those who are preparing communion to come forward in the band if they will. And let me explain this. I know we've got, obviously, the football team. You guys are here today. We've got other guests that are here today. So let me just explain how this works so you're not thrown off by it. Uh, communion is something that Jesus has commanded us to do. Uh, it's, a, it, it's something that we do to remember what Christ has accomplished for us. Think about this. Every place in the New Testament, Jesus referred to God as Father. Every place except for one that was at the cross. At the cross, when Jesus, before he died for your sins, he did not say, my Father, my Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Because at the cross, Jesus was forsaken for you. 
so you'll never be forsaken by the Father. At the cross, Jesus was kicked out of the family of God, so you will never be kicked out of the family of God. He was treated the way we deserve to be treated for our sin, so we can be treated the way he deserves to be treated for all eternity. And communion is a way that we remember that truth. We come around the table together. And so if you have received Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are more than welcome to partake of communion. We have bread here, gluten-free bread, that actually represents the perfect life of Christ. We'll tear that off for you. We have juice here, which represents his blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You can come and partake. We also have disposable cups held back there by Shane. If you'd rather take communion that way, you can grab those. But again, if you have trusted in Jesus, we invite you forward. Even if you're not a member of this church, you are welcome to the table. If you have not, listen, let me say this real quick. There's no shame in not coming forward. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't believe in anything I say, and you're like, I'm not ready, I don't believe that stuff, man, I'm still so glad you're here. We're all glad you're here. You're welcome here, even with your doubts, even if your fears, even if your questions, you're not going to be second class by not coming up, okay? And so I would encourage you, if you've received Christ, you've trusted in Christ, come forward. If you have not, but you're like, man, I want to today. I want to know this Jesus. I want to enter this family. Again, I'm up here. would love to connect with you. Come with someone or talk with someone you came with. And I know they'd love to help you process as well. With that, let's stand together. We're going to uh, take communion. We'll sing one final song and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have provided a way for us to experience the love that we have been longing for since birth through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.